0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be continuing a series we began last Sunday called Reveal. And this series is anchored in Matthew chapter 16 and 17, where we see Jesus revealing greater truths about Himself to the disciples as He is headed towards the cross. And last week we began this study by looking at a conversation that Jesus had with Peter in the town of Caesarea Philippi, and today we're going to see the rest of that conversation as Jesus continued to talk to Peter there. Um, but before we do that, I want to ask you all a question, and that question is this, who is Mike? Now, that's not a rhetorical question, that's a real question. So I want you just to take a moment and answer the question, who is Mike? In your head right now, I want you to, to think through, I'm not going to call on you, I'm not going to ask you to speak this answer aloud, but I want you just where you sit to answer the question, who is Mike? Got your, got your answer? Now, I don't know what your answer was, but I wonder if it was this Mike. This Mike is about six feet, six inches tall. Uh, He's an architect. He won $125,000 on the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he ate lunch every day in high school with me. Um, How many of you, just show of hands, how many of you, when I said, Who is Mike, how many of you had that as your answer? I got one at the back. That's awesome. We need to connect afterward, Eric. I think that's Eric back there. Uh, we, we can talk about this more later, but I don't know how you, how you understood that. Maybe you were in the 945 service, but here's the thing. When I, when I say who is Mike, uh, who did you think of? You thought of somebody from your own experience, didn't you? You may be named Mike. You thought of yourself. You may be married to Mike. You may have of that person. You may have a child named Mike. You may have a roommate named Mike, somebody on your floor, somebody that you work with, somebody in your extended family named Mike. When I said Mike and I asked you to define who that was, no doubt you pulled a definition from your experience and you said that is who Mike is. But in order for that answer to be right and connected with what I was asking, you needed more than just your reason you needed more than just your experience. You needed some revelation. Because I say, Mike, we might have had some points of connection. We might have both been thinking of a male. We might have both been thinking of even somebody with blonde hair. If your Mike had blonde hair, we might have had some points of overlap. But in order for that to become fully anchored in reality, you needed more than just your reason or experience. You needed some revelation. Now, friends, this is an important concept for us to think about because when it comes to God, many times people think that our knowledge of God is anchored or rooted only in our reason or experience. In other words, God just said, okay, there is a God, go, and then we're able to create God in our own image or on the basis of our own experience. But God, who is, who is great and infinite, cares more about a relationship with us and wants more intimacy with us than merely us creating him in our own image. He wants us to get to know him for who he really is. And so God has revealed himself to us. Far more than just giving a name or a category, God has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself to us through nature. There are certain things we can tell by the scope and grandeur of his creation about his identity. But but also, he's given us revelation inside of his word. The 66 books of the Old and the New Testament are revelation that let us know what God is like. But also, certainly, there's revelation in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He showed up and he revealed who God was. And friends, if we are to come to know God for who he really is, we need more than just our reason. We need his revelation. And that's what we see happening in Matthew 16 and 17, is Jesus pulling back the curtain and revealing more of who he is to the disciples, and because it was preserved for us in Matthew 16 and 17, revealing it to us. And this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28, as we're going to see in those verses a little more of a revelation of who God really is. Now, before we read those verses, I want to again just remind us of the context. If you weren't here last week, uh, these verses follow the, the beginning parts of chapter 16 where Jesus has a conversation with the disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some think you're a prophet or Elijah or John the Baptist come back to life. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And after Peter answered that, Jesus gives him several gold stars on his paper and he says, you know, blessed are you because flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but your Father in heaven has revealed that information to you, Peter. And the verses we're getting ready to look at are what follow next. So if you've got a Bible, look at Matthew chapter 16 beginning in verse 21. It says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples "'that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him, saying, "'Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you.' But he turned and he said to Peter, "'Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man.' For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now in those seven verses, we're going to see three things today that are important for us to remember as we get to know God for who He has revealed Himself to be. The first thing that we need to see is this, given and not taken. Given and not taken. What do I mean by that, and where do we see that in the passage? Well, the idea is that Jesus' life was given as a willing sacrifice on the cross. It was not taken from him through human malice. Jesus knew what he was doing as he gave his life so that you and I might find forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus reveals that in his conversation with the disciples. Now, verse 21 begins, and it says, From that time. Now, that little phrase, from that time, those three words are used two times in Matthew's gospel. It's used here, but it's also used back in Matthew chapter 4, and they mark two significant movements in Jesus' ministry. In chapter 4, those words are used when Jesus begins His public ministry, presenting Himself as the Messiah, the promised one of God, who would deliver Israel. When, When Jesus begins that revelation of His role as Messiah, it says from that time He began to reveal Himself in that way. Here in chapter 16, that phrase is used again, and it's used this time not to talk about something that Jesus was revealing in this direction in terms of his identity as the Messiah, but it is used to show Jesus now turning his eyes toward Jerusalem and walking there to offer his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. You see, from that time, because of the rejection that the Jewish leaders had given to Jesus and his ministry, Jesus begins, it says, in verse 21, talking about going to Jerusalem where He will suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. Friends, Jesus reveals at this point in His ministry to His disciples that He knew exactly what was lying in front of Him, and He would willingly give His life as a sacrifice. It was not taken from Him by the Jewish leaders. Now, what does this reveal to us about Jesus? It reveals that Jesus knew several things. Well, what is one of the things that this reveals to us that Jesus knew? The first thing that it reveals that Jesus knew is that Jesus knew that His death was coming. Jesus knew that He was going to offer His life on the cross In verse 21, we see that. It says, Jesus reveals to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. Jesus knew exactly what was lying in front of him. He knew that he was going to lay his life down. And not only did he know it in terms of he just was saying a lot of things and he got it right once, but Jesus kept talking about the fact that he was going to give his life as a sacrifice for their sins. Three times in the next four chapters, Jesus will talk about giving his life as a sacrifice. Chapter 17, verses 22 and 23 say, and as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Jesus was telling them that he was going to give his life. It wasn't to be taken from him. in chapter 20, we see in verses 17 to 19, it says, As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He'll be raised on the third day. See, again and again and again, Jesus is calling the shot. He says that he knows that his life is going to be given as a sacrifice. It wasn't taken from him. Well, not only does this reveal that Jesus knew that he was headed to die, but it also lets us know that he knew where that was going to take place. Again and again, in each of these passages, he identifies Jerusalem as the location where he would give his life as a sacrifice. Not only that, but Jesus knew who would be the ones who would perpetrate this act. He calls them the chief priests and the scribes a, a phrase referring to the Sanhedrin or the Jewish leaders, but he also knew that they could not execute him on their own, that they would need cooperation with the romans and so he, he talks about in chapter twenty in his in his uh, prophecy he talks about the Gentiles conspiring with the Romans in order to kill him. Jesus knew that death was coming. He knew where he would give his life as a sacrifice, and he knew who was coming after him. And not only that, but Jesus knew that it was going to be awful. In chapter 20, it talks about a crucifixion and flogging and mocking and beating. Jesus knew that the skin on his body would be ripped off. He knew that he would be nailed to a block of wood, that he would be raised up to suffocate in in public where he would be mocked and ridiculed and spit on. It wasn't an accident. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew where it was going to happen. He knew exactly what was going to happen and who was going to do it. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus knew all of that, why did he go there? I mean, with that kind of knowledge, with that kind of power... Why would he walk south to Jerusalem and not north to Lebanon? Why would he walk south to Jerusalem and not west to the Mediterranean? Knowing what was waiting for him, why did he go to Jerusalem? Knowing who would arrest him and and beat him and mock him and ultimately kill him, why did he walk freely among them in the temple courts? Why did Jesus parade right there? Well, friends... He went there because of a couple of things, a couple of implications of all of this. The first reason why Jesus went there was because he was living out the strategic plan that God had laid out. It was not an accident that Jesus went to the cross. He wasn't arrested by sinful men that were enacting their own plan. He was going to give his life as a sacrifice the sins of you and I. See, God the Father had enacted a plan and had sent Jesus to execute it, to live on the earth and reveal the reality of who God was, but then to go to the cross and die, though He is sinless to die for our sins, to take the payment that your sins and my sins deserve so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. Jesus' life wasn't taken from Him, friends. It was given as a part of God's strategic plan so that you and I might have a relationship with God forever. And the second thing this reveals to us is why Jesus did that. He did that out of obedience to his Father, but also as a demonstration of God's love. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus went to the cross because of God's love for us and his love for us that could reconcile us to himself so that we might be with God forever. Jesus' life was not taken from him in some tragic act of history, some senseless act. Jesus' life was given freely as a sacrifice and a demonstration of God's love for you. Now here's the thing, friends. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, I can tell you what God wants you to do with that. He wants you to embrace it in faith. A little earlier on before I began the sermon, I read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it talked about God's desire that none should perish but all would come to repentance. What God desires is for us to see that gift of love and embrace it in faith so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to him forever. Have you done that? Have you embraced him in faith? Are you trusting him today, or are you still on the outside looking at the life of Jesus and not able to make sense of it? If this morning it's beginning to make sense, what Jesus was doing, maybe today is the day that God is inviting you to place your faith and trust in him. The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus gave his life. It was not taken from him. The second thing that we need to see, though, is this. Revealed and not reasoned. Revealed and not reasoned. Now, I say that because there were certain things about God, there were certain things about Jesus that Peter got right. But there were other things about God that he did not get right. And the reason why Peter didn't get some of these other things right was because they didn't match his rationale, or his reason, or his experience. You see, what happens is, after Jesus says he's going to the cross, Peter, it says in verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, this is a remarkable scene, right? The Son of God is taken aside by Peter, who tells him, Jesus, you're wrong. Now, it's easy for us in that situation to kind of lampoon Peter a little bit. It's easy for us to kind of pick on Peter. But let's just think about what Peter was doing. I think what Peter was doing was he was applying what he had just said through the grid of his own rationale and expectations. See, what had Peter just said? Peter had just said, you are the Christ. And he had just said, you are the son of the living God. Now, the Christ, the Messiah, was supposed to rule, not get ridiculed. The son of the living God was to live and not die. And so we can imagine Peter in this situation running what Jesus had just said through the grid of his own rationale in his own experience, he thought, okay, Jesus is now moving on to the essay portion of my exam. And he's wanting to know if I can apply what I just said. And so I'm going to tell him that the Messiah is, rules and is not ridiculed. The Messiah lives and does not die. Therefore, Jesus, what you said that you're going to go to Jerusalem and die must be wrong. But it wasn't. It was right. Jesus knew what he was talking about. Surprise, surprise. And what Jesus says to Peter is exceptionally harsh, but right on the money. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I'm guessing that's not the response that Peter was hoping he would hear, um, but no less important. The word Satan means adversary, and as Jesus interacts with Peter, he hears in Peter's words the same kind of opposition he heard from Satan back in the wilderness, an offer to to rule without the cross, an offer for influence without giving up his life. And Jesus says to Peter, hey, you will not get in the way of what I have come to do. I have come to give my life, and no one, including you, is going to talk me out of it. Get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus continues, and he, he calls Peter a hindrance at this point. He says, you're a hindrance to me. Now, I think that's a, an interesting little phrase because the word hindrance is the word for a stumbling stone in the original language. And I think Jesus is just full of puns here, right? Peter, the rock, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, and then Jesus says, Peter, you're not acting like a foundation stone here. You're acting like a stumbling stone. This word for a stumbling stone was also used in the first century to describe a trap that would capture an animal, and the bait would be placed near it. The animal would trip over it and find themselves caught. And Jesus said, Peter, Satan is using you like the bait in a trap to get me to walk away from the cross. It's not going to happen. What was Peter's problem? Jesus gets right to it at the end of that verse. He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, what Jesus said is, Peter, there are things about me And there are things about what God is doing that you cannot get to merely by your own reason and rationale. You must receive some revelation to make sense of it. Now, hear me when I say this, friends. Trusting Christ and following Him is not checking our brains at the door. It's not not using our reason and our minds that God has given us. I mean, there are many things that we can come to understand with the minds that God has given us, and there are many things that we get right as we reflect upon the earth and what we see. But here's the thing. There are other things about God that simply go beyond our ability to perceive and reason. And the only way we will come to know them is through the revelation of God. The cross is one of them. We can look at the Grand Canyon and determine that God is great, But we can't look at the Grand Canyon and understand the cross. Jesus had to come and spell that out for us. specific revelation was given by God to fill in those gaps. And so we need to remember that our reason has its limits. And this is something that we need to be challenged with because we are tempted many times to say, you know, I just don't know how God can be loving and yet there is so much suffering in the world. I I just don't know how God can be sovereign, and yet there are so many problems happening in the life of a friend of mine that I know knows Jesus. How is it that those two things can come together? Sovereign God and suffering. Loving God and pain. How do those things come together? I just don't understand. Holy God and evil in the world. How how do these things mesh? See, at times we're, we're tempted to look at God and try to define Him in ways that our mind can fully comprehend. And yet there are things that God is doing and there are things that God is that simply go beyond our ability to reason or rationalize our way there. And God invites us to come to Him and get to know Him through His revelation instead. Jesus did that with Peter, and I think we're challenged in a similar way today. So if the first thing we see in these verses is that Jesus' life was given and not taken, if the second thing we see is that there's things that we need to be revealed and that we do not simply reason our way to. The third thing, and I think this is really important for us to see, is that given, not kept. Now, what do I mean by that, given, not kept? Well, in verses 24 to 28, Jesus begins to describe the process of discipleship. And as he describes the process of discipleship, what he says is, if you want to really be connected to me and follow me in your everyday life, you're not going to keep your life, you're not going to keep your rights, but you're going to freely give them to me. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 24 through 28. He's describing discipleship. Now, when I say discipleship, several of us in this room will, will come up with a different definition. For some of you, discipleship will mean sitting across the table at a coffee shop with a cup of coffee talking about life. For others, discipleship might be a course that you complete, and at the end of it, you get a certificate that says you've completed courses one through four, so you have been discipled. Now, Uh, for, for others, discipleship might be participating in a ministry with a mentor who's coming alongside you and pointing you in different directions. All of those things are activities that make up parts of discipleship. But what Jesus is getting to in Matthew chapter 16 is not just some of the activities of discipleship, but the essence of it. If we are to be discipled by Jesus, to be one of his disciples, to be one of his followers, what are some of the foundational decisions that you and I need to make? Jesus comes to that point in verses 24 to 28. He says, if anybody is to come after me, if anybody is to be a disciple, there are three key activities that they will participate in, the three decisions that they need to make. He says that they will deny themselves, they will take up their cross, and they will follow Him. Those three basic decisions, Jesus says, make up a discipleship relationship with Jesus. Now, what do each of those words and phrases mean? The first word there is let him deny himself. And what Jesus is getting at when he talks about denying himself is a fundamental decision on who is an authority in our lives. In our natural state, who is our authority? Us, right? In our natural state, we are our own authority. A baby who is just born is born with this authority to call out their needs, and everybody runs and brings them milk, right? That's the way that it is, or comes and brings them care. The, the baby is born with this inclination to fight for their own survival, to be in their own place of authority. And as we grow up, we maintain that. And I think about my life and my experience. Every time uh, in, in my pre-Christ days, I lived at the center of my own world, the center of my own life. And when I think even now about my life and the times when I sin, what is happening is I am in authority. I am in control of my own life. I think I know what's best. I think I know what I most want. I'm in this place of authority. And what Jesus is saying as it comes to discipleship is he says if we are to follow him, if we are to come after him, there's a fundamental thing that happens in our life, and that is when we say, Jesus, you're the one who is my authority. We we, we slide over to the passenger seat, or better yet, we crawl into the back seat, and we give Jesus the wheel, and we say, Jesus, you're driving this bus. What, What you say goes, and I will follow you. You see, Jesus says that a foundational piece of our discipleship is denying ourselves and placing him in a position of authority. My, my question to us today is, have you done that? Have you come to a spot in your life where, where you have recognized your need for Jesus to take the wheel, for Jesus to guide you? Is he your authority? What he says goes. As he reveals things in his word, we look at them as truth and not as error. Jesus said that one of the marks of discipleship is that people would deny ourselves, that we would look to him as our authority. The second phrase is as we put him as our authority, that we would take up our cross. Now, what does it mean to take up our cross? You know, oftentimes we want to to take that phrase, take up our cross, and we even, you know, use it as a punchline of a joke at times uh, related to any kind of inconvenience we might experience in our life. That's my cross to bear. I mean, some of you, as you showed up at Wildwood today, may have had to park further away from the building than you're comfortable with. And as you got out and you walked towards the building, you might have said, you know, this is my cross to bear today. Uh, Julius, you're laughing. Maybe you're thinking that. Uh, But, you know, think about that. But, but. You know, Other times we might think that, that our cross to bear is any inconvenience, any struggle that we might have, an illness that we might have dealt with, a, a struggle at work that we might be going through. We think about those things as our cross to bear, just any kind of inconvenience. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about when He mentions our cross to bear here. He's not talking about any kind of inconvenience, any kind of struggle. In other verses and other passages, we'll get direction about the challenges of just living in a fallen world. In these verses, I think Jesus is talking about something specific as he talks about taking up our cross. He's talking about ridicule and opposition and persecution that we will encounter simply because we are connected to Jesus. Taking up our cross and and following him is is saying, you know what, I'm so connected to Jesus that just as the world rejected Jesus, so the world will reject me. Now, some of you in this room have experienced that. As you have begun to follow Christ, you have experienced rejection because of your faith in Him, family that you're now distanced from, friendships that have been lost, or, or worse. But the reality is, for many of us growing up in this environment, we have not experienced that kind of opposition or that kind of rejection. And if that's the case, I don't want you to feel bad as I read these verses. I want you to actually be thankful to God for His gracious provision because here's the reality. You realize that your experience, if you have not experienced persecution and opposition, that that's the minority, not the majority. When I think of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world right now and certainly throughout history, the dominant expression that happens when somebody begins to follow Christ is that there is crisis in their life, in their relationships with others because others are rejecting them because of their connection to Jesus. Jesus said if we are to be His disciple, we will deny ourselves, we'll put Him in the authority, and then we will pick up our cross, we'll be willing to endure ridicule and hardship because of our connection to Him. And the last thing He says is He says we will follow Him. That's that ongoing, everyday rhythm of following Christ in obedience to the direction that He has called out inside of His Word and through the leading of His Spirit. Friends, we think about our mission as a church. We talk about following Jesus together to the glory of God. And the reason why that's our mission statement is it's because that's what Jesus consistently asked of His followers. He asked them just as He does right here in Matthew 16, to follow Him. Friends, are we following Him? Are we denying ourselves? taking up our cross, willingly experiencing opposition and following Jesus throughout our days. That's what Jesus defines as a basic discipleship relationship. But now here's something that's funny. What's funny about that is when I talk about our connection to Jesus being about self-denial and taking up a cross, we might have this thought, well, that doesn't sound very fun. As a matter of fact, that actually sounds kind of painful. Is it actually worth it for us to follow Jesus? Is it actually worth it for us to be one of His disciples? We're thinking that, but Jesus is three steps ahead of us because where He goes next in the conversation is He goes to answering that question. Verse 26, He says, or or, I'm sorry, verse 25, He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, it is worth it because true life is found in Jesus. It's not found in us. Our plans are not as good as his. If we try to hang on to the position of authority in our life, we'll only end up with greater heartache and hardship. Verse 26, he says it a different way. He says, "...for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul?" Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is saying is he says, you know, many times we keep the authority of our lives because we think that we'll end up with more of what we want or even more of what we need. We'll end up with more money or more experience or, or more people will like us, more adoration. Whatever it is, we, we hang on to authority because we think that what we will gain on the other side of that is what is best for us. But Jesus makes it clear it's, it's not worth it for us to hang on to and pursue those blessings ourselves, He knows what is better for us. In verse 27, lets us know that one day that will be quite clear. In 27, He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Jesus says in verse 27 that one day He's coming back to the earth And when He comes back to the earth on that day, He will reward His followers by giving them a reward for their faithfulness in following Him. And in other parts of Scripture, we see that as a greater responsibility inside of His kingdom that He will establish. So what we see inside of these verses is something that John Walvoord actually says as he looks at these verses. He says, for the world there is immediate gain but ultimate loss. For the disciple, there is immediate loss, but ultimate gain. In other words, if we don't think it's worth it to follow Christ, our clock is too short. With an eternal clock, it is absolutely worth it for us to follow Him. Now, what Jesus says last in these verses, I think, is is interesting, and it resonates with our experience. You see, if anybody ever promises you something a long time in the future, in some indefinite amount of time, eventually you might grow weary that that promise will not materialize. My son has experienced this with me. Uh, Josh will come in at times and and say, hey, Dad, can we shoot baskets? And I'll say, yeah, in a minute. Anybody ever say something like that? Josh has enough experience with me, though, now to know that if I say that, he'll say, no, no, I want an exact time. Um. (laughs) In a minute could be, you know, four hours on your clock. And so, you know, nail it down for me, Dad. When are we actually going to go outside and shoot baskets? Is it going to be at 35 after, at 37 after, at 40 after? I need to know. Um, We have these kinds of conversations. I think what happens next is something quite similar. The disciples were like, it's great that you're promising this eternal reward at some point in the future, but how do I know it's actually going to materialize? Jesus says in verse 28, He says, how long will that clock be? He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, what's Jesus saying here? These verses, that that verse has been confusing to many, but I don't think it needs to be. What Jesus is saying there is He says, some of you are getting ready to see something that will let you know that I have the king of kings kind of power. What does Matthew say next? This is a passage we're going to look at next Sunday. You'll have to come back to hear more explicitly. But in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Six days later, Jesus took some of them, Peter, James, and John, up onto a high mountain, and he was transfigured in front of them. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the king pulled back the curtain and revealed more of his kingliness to some of them as a reminder that he had the power and authority to deliver everything he had just promised. Before they died, they got proof. And as if that wasn't enough, you know what else Jesus did? Oh, yeah, he walked out of a tomb. And that was not an accident either. As a matter of fact, Jesus called that shot, If we look back at the the verses that we've seen earlier where Jesus predicted his, his death, every time he predicted his death, he also mentioned his resurrection. He says in chapter 16, and he'll be killed and on the third day be raised again. In chapter 17, verse 23, they'll kill him and he'll be raised on the third day. In chapter 20, verse 19, he'll be crucified and he'll be raised on the third day Jesus wanted everybody to know that He was going to give His life. He was revealing this truth, and it guaranteed that He was able to make it worth it for anyone who would ever follow after Him. And so as we gather here today, in 2018, a couple of thousand years after these events, we're given similar opportunities. We're given an opportunity to follow Jesus together will we go